Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. We are in our Acts series as we continue to move through books of the Bible and the New Testament specifically. And in this case, we're going through the book of Acts and looking at the, the larger themes, especially with a book like Acts, that's 28 chapters long. You're not going to cover everything, uh, but we're looking at some of the bigger themes. Um, and so we're going to get to that t- today. So last time we talked about just the nature of Acts, the spread of the gospel, the kingdom, how uh, this, you know, those those sorts of things really created a conflict uh, amongst the nations, amongst the Jews. So let's look at Acts and uh, some of its literary designs and and how these help us understand Acts better. So what would you say is one key design feature of Acts? Well, the first thing to remember, of course, is the book of Acts is the continuation of the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, through the Apostles. So one thing that's interesting to note is that Luke is intentionally telling the story in the book of Acts in light of the story of the gospel of Luke. In other words, you could put Luke and Acts side by side, and you'll note they both begin with a preface written to a man named Theophilus. And then early on, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And then early on, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles, of course, Acts chapter 2. And as you just keep going through the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, you're going to notice all these parallels that the disciples are doing the same things that, that Jesus did. And Luke's very intentional about this. So in Luke chapter four, Jesus preaches a sermon and declares that the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. In Acts chapter two, Peter preaches a sermon and declares that the prophecies are being fulfilled. In Luke chapter five, Jesus heals a lame man. In Luke, Acts chapter three, Peter heals a lame man. Luke chapter five, religious leaders attack Jesus. In Acts chapter four, all the way through chapter eight, really, the religious leaders attack the apostles. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus arrives at a centurion's house who invites Jesus to the house. Acts chapter 10, a centurion invites Peter to his house. Of course, the centurion in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke is like, well, I'm not sure you should come to my house. I'm not worthy, but we talked about that, the context behind that. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. From dead. And then in Acts chapter 9, Peter raises a widow from the dead. Jesus travels to Jerusalem. Paul travels to Jerusalem. Jesus received favorably. Peter's received, Paul's received favorably. Jesus is devoted to the temple. Paul is devoted to the temple. The Sadducees oppose Jesus, but the scribes support him in, in Gospel of Luke chapter 20. The Sadducees oppose Paul, but the Pharisees support him in Acts chapter 23. Just keep going, going through. Let me mention a couple of other examples. Jesus break, breaks bread and gives thanks. Paul breaks bread and gives thanks. Jesus is seized by an angry mob. Paul seized by an angry mob. Jesus is slapped by the high priest. Paul slapped by the high priest. Really interesting, by the way. It's like random. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Luke 22, Jesus is slapped by the high priest's aid, anyways. Acts 23. Paul is stopped by the high priest at his command. Jesus is tried four times and declared innocent three times. Paul is tried four times and declared innocent three times. Jesus is rejected by the Jews. Uh, Paul is rejected by the Jews. Jesus is regarded favorably by a centurion. Paul is regarded favorably by a centurion. The final confirmation of the scriptures has been fulfilled at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And at the end of the book of Acts, the final confirmation of the scriptures have been fulfilled. These, those were all given to us by a scholar named Mark Allen Powell in his uh, introduction to the Gospels. So it's a really apparent that what Jesus did, the disciples did. And maybe the way to describe that would be in the gospel of John, Jesus promises the disciples that greater works than these shall you do. And you see Acts showing us the disciples are doing the very things that that Jesus himself did and even ultimately to to some extent greater. 
So ultimately, so, then yeah, let, let's clarify something real quick, because when we went through the Matthew, when we went through the gospel of Matthew, we spent a lot of time looking at how Matthew is clearly presenting Jesus as the new Moses, you know, these things that Jesus or that Moses did, whether it was going to the mountain to receive the law or going through the Red Sea or uh, going mm -hmm. into the wilderness, all these sorts of things. And we say how Matthew presents Jesus this way, and he's the better Moses. What you're not saying is that Paul and the apostles are the better Jesus. Right. What you're saying is what Jesus now, what climaxed in Jesus and his mission, he is now sending off. And what we're seeing in Acts is the fulfillment of the mission that Jesus started. But I think you actually said this. I don't remember if it was the first episode of Acts. It might've been a different one mm. where it, like his job wasn't complete or I forget right. how you said he it. He didn't finish the job. He didn't finish the job. Yeah. And so now this is what we're seeing here is right. they are doing the same sorts of things that Jesus did. Yes. In fact, I think we can go further with the reality that, yeah, there's going to be a, a boundary point that we're not going to cross, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not saying that the church or the people of God in the New Testament are the incarnate son of God. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not going that nope. far. But what we are saying is this, Jesus is Adam. Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Jesus is the son of God. He, and that's a role, that's a mission, that's an object, that's to make God known, the image mm -hmm. bearer of God. He is the image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians chapter one. Mm -hmm. And what the church is, or what the people of God are called to do, is the exact same thing. We are called to be the true Adam, the image-bearing uh, ch children of God. We are called to be the Son of God. We are called to do what Jesus did. And in doing so, they'll know you are my disciples if you love one another. When we act like Jesus to act, and when we do what Jesus did, we're manifesting Christ to the nations. We're not Christ, mm -hmm. but we're manifesting Christ or making known the Father by what we do and who we are. I think that's really important because the church has lost sight of that because we've, well, we've made the gospel about your salvation and getting mm -hmm. ourselves saved so you can go to heaven when you die someday. And we've lost sight of the mission of the church. And the mission of the church is to go do what Jesus did. Well, and, and even that, that, who Jesus was. The, the, what you just said, the juxtaposition of yes. people like Romans, is it Romans four or five is uh, where it talks about Adam. Uh, Romans five, Romans five. Okay. So mm -hmm. Jesus is the true Adam Romans chapter eight. We are conformed to the image of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, like, so, you know, even in the great Protestant tradition, which I'm in the reformed Protestant tradition, which I'm a part of like, Hey, this is just the book of Romans guys. We yes. love Romans. That's our favorite book. It's right there. We're not talking about something new in the book of revelation. Yeah. Jesus is the one sitting on the throne and he, it, because he overcame, what is this? Uh, revelation three is the very end of, of 321. Yeah. 328. Uh, you know, 21. he overcame 21 or 28, 21, 21. That's what it's. he overcame. So he could sit on his father's throne. And and we see this like chapter five, and if you this overcome, great, you'll sit on, but, on but that's the thing. Me. Yeah. We get it as well. Yeah. And so you're not saying anything. That's just some weird, no. wacky thing. You're just, you're completing part of the biblical story. That's clearly there. Yes. And that's so often tragically left out. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said the gospel is missional. The gospel itself is missional. The gospels are missional and the book of Acts is missional. So let me just kind of cut to the end of tonight's show. And that's this to say, you know, at the end of my copy of the book of Acts, my paper copy, which I don't know how much we use anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote at the end of Acts 28, I wrote dot, dot, dot to be continued because mm. the story of the God's people doesn't end with Paul in prison in Rome. It's just beginning and that story continues in our lives. And I think that's so critical and so crucial that, hey, what is it that Jesus did? What is it that he's calling us to do so that we can then manifest him? And so we shouldn't be surprised that mm. Paul is doing what Jesus did. And that Luke is intentionally telling the story of Peter and Paul as it's the parallel to what Jesus did. It's really actually pretty, pretty incredible when you start looking at it. Mm. Yep.
So transitioning now, one of the problems that we saw last time was that there was a conflict amongst Christians and Jews. So how does this impact the way Luke might present this story in Acts? Yeah, so remember that as the gospel goes out, there's going to be conflict of every stripe. One, of course, is the, the conflict that we're going to see is they go into the Gentile cities of Phil, or amongst the Gentile people in Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and, and Corinth and uh, eventually Rome. But within each of these cities, as long as there was a synagogue and a Jewish con- constituency there, there came conflicts amongst them. And then within those that accepted Christianity also create the tension. These tensions continue on. And we discussed this last time that, you know, it's this heritage, this tradition, the way that I was raised, the things that I was I believe to be true. And okay, I, I understand the gospel goes to the Gentiles now. I understand that Jesus makes all things clean. I understand, I believe that. I accept that. But I'm still not comfortable. Let's say, I'm not, I wouldn't be comfortable eating pork, for example. I just, mm-hmm. you can have it. That's fine. I get it. Pepperoni pizza to you, but not for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I was going to say, yeah, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just play acting here, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's I don't really mean that. Yes. Uh, this, these are real sensitivities that people have and real things that people have. And so they're constantly struggling with this. When we go to 1 Corinthians 1, we see that the church in Corinth was divided. And Paul addresses this division at the very, very beginning of his letter to the church in Corinth. He says, I've been informed, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. I've been informed concerning you, my brothers, that by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, or Cephas and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified What for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what's happening then is this church had this fourfold division, and the fourfold division was, well, we follow Apollos. And if you remember Apollos, I think we mentioned him briefly in one of these episodes, that he was this um, man who was transformed by Priscilla and Aquila. He had known about John the Baptist and just a dynamic speaker and a dynamic Christian, and apparently became a leader in the church in Corinth. We follow Cephas or Cephas. Notice that's Peter's name in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. You know that those are Aramaic Jews, Hebraic Jews, who still follow the traditions of Jerusalem, speak the Aramaic language, and eat Aramaic foods and keep those customs. They're not Hellenized, in other words. So others say, I follow Paul. And Paul's like, well, you know, that'd be great. That's probably, that's the right group. No, Paul's like, that's not the right group. Paul wasn't crucified for you. Mm-hmm. And there's a the fourth group. Well, we follow Christ. And you think, oh, well, Paul's certainly going to endorse that group. No, because they were arrogant. They were like, we're, we're, we're the only ones that follow Jesus. You guys follow Paul. You know, you guys are Baptists. You know, we're like reformed. <laughs> it's like the only way to go. You know, we do that today, though, don't we? Yep, right? yep. So you see these divisions there. And so what Paul has to deal with now is the fact that the early church, many of the early Christians, especially the Jewish contingency, that, and I'm talking about Christians, the Jewish people that had adopted Christianity. They were more partial to Peter, obviously Cephas is their Aramaic name, and they were easily opposed to Paul. And you see this in, in Acts chapter 19 and 20 when Paul travels into Jerusalem. Hey, Paul, the people heard what you've been doing around the world, and they're not going to assure that they want you to come into town. How about if you go, you know, do this Nazarite vow for the, and pay these guys their sacrifice and help them through the Nazarite vow? then people can know that you follow the Old Testament customs. You haven't just abolished them altogether. Paul's doing these things for, um, well, to gain favor in a sense. I mean, it's just, it's not wrong. He's mm-hmm. saying, sure, I haven't abandoned the Jewish ways. I haven't abandoned the Old Testament. Sure, if I go ahead and take some of the money that I have for this offering in Jerusalem and give it to these men for the Nazarite vows, it'll get me some cred, street cred with the people in Jerusalem. Sure, let's do it. Let's let's frame it in a, not so, because uh, that almost has like a negative connotation, like you're just trying mm-hmm. to get something, but he's developing relational capital. 
Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. And that just sounds a, a nice more. political way of saying it. Well, it, it, I don't know, for me, that yeah, might, no, you're right. It, we're trying to put it in a positive yeah. way because, but Paul's not a slime bag. The guy didn't, it's not like he, you know, what can we say, was just be, trying to be slimy on things and work his way in. You know, but he's also very deliberate in terms of how he develops relationships. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's got right. There's a group of people that are and that are naturally opposed or suspect of him, and here's a way that he can kind of gain some favor among yeah. them. As Romans 12 said that he wrote, he's like, as far as it depends, he would apply this yeah. to him on yeah. me, make peace with all. You know? exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, very much. All right. So Luke now is a companion of Paul. And so we, as we said, if you're reading the gospel, the book of Acts, if you're reading the book of Acts, if you see the we statements in the book of Acts, then you know that Luke is present. And so we realize that Luke is present for a significant amount of Paul's travels and Paul's journeys. And so Luke is writing a polemic. He's writing an argument in defense of Paul or an apologetic, if you want to say it that way. And so he's comparing Peter and Paul. So another way to recognize or to read the book of um, Acts is to recognize, well, the first part of the book, you can say one through 12 is about Peter and 13 Mm -hmm. through 28 is about Paul. Doesn't quite work out that way because obviously Paul kind of comes in earlier in the book and Peter shows up in chapter 15, things like that. But nonetheless, that's fine. And what you'll see in the first part of the book is the things that Peter does which, mind you, are the things that Jesus did, are also things that Paul does. Mm-hmm. So if Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, then Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13. If Peter preaches the word with boldness, then so does Paul. If they bear witness that Jesus was crucified, then so does, you know, if Paul, Peter does that, then so does, so does Paul. And you can just kind of go on down. They both heal a crippled person. Peter does in Jerusalem and Paul does in Lystra. They both healed other sick people. They both exercised demonic spirits out of people. They both raised the dead. Uh, Peter raises Tabitha and Joppa, and Eutychus is raised by Paul and Troas. They both called down God's judgment on a sorcerer. Peter does on Simon Magus, and Paul does on Elimus and Paphos. They both refused worship of their fellow human beings. Peter refused it from Cornelius. Paul refused it from people in in Lystra. So you just start realizing, okay, whatever Peter does, it's almost like Luke's thinking, whatever I said about Peter, I have to make sure that I clarify that Paul did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Paul's better, but to say that mm-hmm. Paul is on an equal standing with Peter. Mm-hmm. Especially not being one of the 12. Right. Mm-hmm. Which even more so goes mm-hmm. against his uh, street cred or credentials, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So then one thing that Luke is not doing in, in writing Acts is he's not just merely writing a church history or a yeah. chronicling the life. Uh, he wasn't a stenographer that's, while he is keeping an orderly account, it's not in the way that we might think so. No, it's a theological document. It's like we discussed, mm-hmm. I think, on our first episode. Mm-hmm. All history is theologically motivated and theologically influenced. And so he's writing a theological history. He's continuing the story of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. And he's got several issues that he's addressing. He's first addressing the fact that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah or King and the fulfillment of Judaism. And this is significant because that means that they can eat with Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And that's okay now because Jesus has declared all things clean. And they're no longer sacrificing at the temple. And that's okay because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. So really significant theological uh, point there. Secondly, as I just mentioned, Peter's on the same level as Paul, or Paul's on the same level as Peter. So that's why there's so many chapters dedicated to Paul's um, imprisonment and his trials and his defense there. Third, Luke is writing to tell us about the, that the kingdom of God has come. And significantly, which I can't believe that we have to stress this so much because it's all over the Gospels. The kingdom of God comes through suffering. So Paul says in Acts 14, 22, 
through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And it's just so funny, Vinny, because, and I think you know this, of course, but the word tribulation in the New mm-hmm. Testament, like every single time it's used, applies to the people of God, the, the yep. church. And yet we have this understanding of like some end times tribulation is going to come on the world, but we're raptured out of the way. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. As a result, uh, Paul himself has to suffer, you know, Acts chapter 9. Hey, Ananias, go lay hands on this Paul guy. Like, yeah, he's come to Damascus to like kill us. Like, don't worry about it. I took care of it. He's blinded. He's waiting for you to come lay your hands on him and anoint him. He will speak the gospel to the kings and the nations, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Hmm. And I'm telling you, you read Paul's story. There's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone in the history of the church, uh, besides Jesus, in the history of the church itself that suffered like Paul. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, I just can't imagine anyone. This guy's story is amazing. So uh, then you add the, f- the fourth element, and ho- we're hoping to get a guest on to talk, to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but um, Luke is also writing to describe the church's confrontation with the Roman world and what that looks like. So as it goes into Philippi, Paul gets in prison, things happen there. As it goes into various cities throughout Ephesus, et cetera, we have these conflicts. And so what, what happens with that? So there's a number of times where there's riots that take place in these cities. And look, I think Luke is kind of showing us, hey, look, these weren't Paul's fault. Again, if it gets back to Theophilus in Rome, okay, hey, look, everywhere this guy goes, there's a riot going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole city of Ephesus was an uproar and the silversmith Demetrius and looks like, yeah, but that wasn't Paul's fault. Let me tell you the story of what actually happened. You mentioned a second ago when talking about tribulation, how in the New Testament, especially in Acts, it's clearly talking about what the people of God are going to experience. Another connection that we could make to Acts and even how people interpret end time stuff is what you see in Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. And we we talked about this a little bit. We talked about verse eight in Mm -hmm. one of the first episodes, but let me read it. Once again, this is chapter one, verses nine through 11. And it says, after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So many people think that this means that this is literally how Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives. Right. He's going to split the mountain in half. Are we seeing a uh, pre-eschatology here in the opening chapter? Yeah, this is so common. One of the problems that people have with this is, obviously, you're pressing the text really, really literally. In the same way that he went up, literally. That's what it says, right? Talking about physically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is the same way he's going to come down. And he went up from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come down to the Mount of Olives. And obviously the prophecy, I think it's in Zechariah 14, it says something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And it says, yeah, but it says that when he comes back, every eye will see him. Oh, that's mm-hmm. because it's going to be on the news. <laughs> it's, it's going to be on cable, te- you know, back in the 80s, it was cable television. Now it'll be satellite television. Yeah. So we have technology now. That's why we know Jesus' return is, Im- this is actually, by the way, what I was taught. We know that Jesus' return is imminent because now we have the technology for every person in the world to see him. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa. John Stott wrote a really good, simple commentary on the book of Acts called The Message of Acts in the Bible Speaks Today series. And he says this, he says, quote, we should not press these words into meaning that the parousia, the, the return of Jesus, will be like a film of the ascension played backwards, or that he will return exactly the same spot in the Mount of Olives and will be wearing the same clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is this, is that Jesus goes up into heaven 
magnificence and splendor and glory. That's what's going to mean when he comes back down, Mm -hmm. not the literalness of his body. There's actually a really good biblical precedent for this, and it's it's found in 2 Kings chapter 2. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Do you want to read that? Yeah. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took a hold of his own clothes and he tore them into pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Yeah. So what you see there is parallel with Jesus, right? You see Jesus ascending up into heaven, Elijah Mm -hmm. ascending up into heaven, flames of fire and chariots of fire, and then the descending of the Holy Spirit. So this is the context that's happening. And so it's not talking about the literal physical acts of ascending into Jesus, but the glory of Jesus going up is going to be the glory with which he returns. And then the descending of the spirit upon his disciples and them after that. So uh, one more quote from John Stott. John Stott says, it was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. I think this is really Mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. The earth, not the sky, that was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. Mm. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia, to the heaven which they received, had received Jesus, but onwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It's the same for us. Curiosity about heaven and its occupants, speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment, and obsession with times and seasons, these are aberrations which distract us from our God-given mission. Hmm. I think that's important. And again, just the reason for saying that is we think, oh, well, now that we can know that Jesus can return exactly the same way because we can see him on television screens, therefore his coming must be near, that kind of end time speculation distracts us from what we're mm-hmm. supposed to actually be doing. Gosh, that stock guy, he's pretty good. He was good. <laughs> he was but all right. God took him up into heaven. Yeah. In this anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's popular in the church to, you know, obviously the passion week is huge, the cross, yeah. the resurrection. And oftentimes we probably more overemphasize the cross than anything. Uh, but it really is a, a phrase that was really helpful in seminary for me. Professors would use is the Christ events, the whole thing, mm. life, death, uh, you know, resurrection, but then also including the ascension. And I think for me, especially in a, growing up uh, or being mm. involved in non-liturgical churches right. where we don't celebrate things like epiphany and that sort of thing, we don't really focus on the, you know, Ascension period. We're right. kind of done at Easter and we're, we're on to, Hey, is summer here yet? Yeah. Um, so the Ascension of Jesus, it just draws so little attention from churches, uh, especially yeah. like I said, non-liturgical churches who might follow yeah. a liturgical calendar. Why do you think that is? And how is it damaging how we view the, the wholeness of, of the gospel story? I think the ultimate answer is that people are too preoccupied with the return of Jesus. Hmm. And 
we've made the cross, which you can't underemphasize the mm. significance of the cross. We've made that central because that's when he died for my sins. We made the resurrection important because his resurrection now proves that I get to resurrect too. And this, mm -hmm. this emphasis on, on me, 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 right? I, 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 salvation, so I can get to go to heaven, all that kind of stuff there means the ascension is like meaningless. Like, well, okay, cool. He went up into heaven. Yeah, great. Oh, but he's coming back again. So I think we make the cross and the resurrection central because they're so pivotal for our salvation. And then we take the return of Jesus because that's like the day we get, you know, uh, our, our eschatological hope, our end times hope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the, es the uh, ascension gets overlooked. Patrick Schreiner wrote a wonderful book actually on the ascension mm -hmm. of Christ. And I think the subtitle is called a Recovering a, ne a Neglected Doctrine. And he argues in that, they that the ascension of Jesus is just as central mm -hmm. to Christian theology as anything else. His point actually is that the ascension of Jesus is the moment when he actually sat down and began his reign. So we know he becomes the king. You can argue at the baptism of Jesus when he's anointed. There's no question that the gospels are portraying Jesus as the king on the cross, the crown of thorns, the sign above his head, mocked with a purple robe, hail king of the Jews. All that stuff in the gospels are clearly wanting us to see Jesus' coronation as happening at the cross. Mm -hmm. The resurrection, of course, proves that he is, has power over the dead and the establishment of the new creation has now begun. The descending of the Holy Spirit, of course, is a sign for the that the new creation is in our lives and true for us now as well. But the ascension is when Christ took his seat at the right hand of God and said, I am the king. And I, as, as you said in Revelation 3.21 earlier, I have sat down with my father on his throne. And if you overcome, I'll grant you the right to sit down with me on my throne. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. So 1 Corinthians 15, I think, is really actually pretty vital here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 25. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. This is the longest extended speech of Paul's on any one topic, if there's a speech, whatever you might want to call it. So the entire chapter is on the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection. Earlier in the passage, he said, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is futile, we're to be pitied more than all men. And now he says in verses 20 through 25, if you want to go ahead and read it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. All right. So first Corinthians 15 is really clear. Christ is presently reigning mm -hmm. from heaven, and he's going to continue to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Now we can don't need to get off on premillennial versus amillennial camps here at all. I would simply say, I don't care whichever camp you're in. I would simply say he presently is reigning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes one of those camps doesn't emphasize that enough. Yeah. And I'd say, that's fine. As long as you can hold either one of those camps, as long as you're affirming the present reign of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now there may be a future reign too, as the premier will say, whatever. But the point of that is the ascension of Christ is the moment when Christ sat down and began his reign. Mm -hmm. 
I remember asking this question to a professor once. He was almost making it sound as though Jesus was not reigning until this moment. And mm-hmm. I said, well, what do you do with these passages? You know, I think we read in, uh, it was it Luke chapter two, where uh, the old man sees mm-hmm. the baby Jesus and says, oh, it's the Messiah. So if he's the Messiah, he's, he is the king, right? Because he obviously isn't reigning. You look at a number of these passages in which seems he is reigning now before the ascension Matthew 28, all authority in, in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? That, that's, that's kingly language. This professor said what he did in the ascension is he is reigning in a different way than he was previously to that. He, he was trying to work it out without being overly systematic about it. So mm-hmm. he, his, his point was something like, yeah, he was reigning after the resurrection, he was reigning because of the resurrection, he was reigning on the cross, but it was in a different kind of way than he was previously. I'm fine with that language. Um, Cause I think in our, in our, in our Western minds, we want it to be so yeah, and this is the thing I was struggling exactly, with. Well, when was the moment that it happened? If it wasn't until resurrection, what do you do with these other things? And we're trying to figure out those pin moments where you could stick the pin in it, in the map. Yeah. So I think when you go to something like, oh, let me say it this way first. If we say that the Gospels present us with Jesus establishing, right? if we use that participle, in the mm-hmm, ing, mm-hmm. he's establishing the kingdom of God. So it's coming in stages and in phases, and it's coming in power and in force, and it, that grows, ultimately climaxing. You could say it as an ascension or the outpouring of the spirit that falls shortly thereafter. Now it's in fullness of force. Obviously, it continues to expand, even as the church continues to expand and taking the gospel around the world. And ultimately, it climaxes, I think, at the second coming of Christ. When and there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more pain. So if you're saying that it's coming in stages and in phases, that's fine. When you take something like the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's this covenant language. If remember, Matthew doesn't have an axe, right? He doesn't have a book mm-hmm. of acts to go to. So he's putting something at the end of the gospel. The kingdom's here in full force. I think you could explain that that way. The same thing I think you do when we discuss this with Mary and my Thompson, John chapter 20. John 20 seems to be a Pentecost event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He breathes on them. Yep. They began, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, John's not writing an Acts event. Now that's problematic for some people because, well, John seems to place it a week after the resurrection of Jesus, whereas Act Pentecost happens 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus or the death, death of Jesus. And the answer is, they weren't worried about those kind of things. They were collapsing timetables. They had no mm-hmm. problem collapsing timetables because they weren't concerned about the timetables. I think Luke's giving us the correct timetable. That's fine. But nonetheless, so I think at the end of Matthew, at the end of John, you can see this fullness of language of kingdom language having come. Mm. That's because they don't have an ax to go to fall back on. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. So as we continue to move into the story of Acts, we also note that the coming of the kingdom of God is the restoration of creation. What are some examples that we see of this in Acts? So this will be a theme that we're going to look at throughout the rest of the New Testament now. Because the letters of the New Testament are building upon this. As Paul's going to say in Colossians, like, look, guys, because you have been raised from the dead, you have been raised, he says, past tense. Therefore, stop living according to your old self and start living according to this. This is Paul's language in the book of Romans and elsewhere. So the first thing that we notice, of course, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 with flames of fire and the violent wind are Mm -hmm. obvious signs of the presence of God. And if the kingdom of God is God's reign, where God reigns and when God reigns, or that God is king, we can see that the coming of the Holy Spirit with fire and wind is a sign that this is coming. We also talked before about the future temple a little bit, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple. 
and the spirit comes and inhabits that new temple. And his presence is a sign of the presence of the new temple. Mm -hmm. We'll see this, of course, when we discuss the book of Ephesians and elsewhere. I think what we talked about maybe briefly last time, and let me expand on just a little bit this time, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit, and I think that's obviously your key in Acts chapter 2, the descending of the Holy Spirit, is the reversal of Babel. Mm -hmm. So again, what's the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is where God reigns. God's the king, and obviously that's Jesus is God's king. And God reigns, is establishing his reign. His reign is over the earth with the goal of restoring and redeeming creation. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, Eden-like conditions are going to be restored. We'll see that, of course, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about this Eden language, ultimately in the book of Revelation as well. And what happens then is you're seeing in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit descends, it's the reversal of Babel. The first thing that you'll notice, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, Jews from around the world were hearing the disciples speak in their own language, whereas in Babel, the exact opposite happened. They were all speaking in different languages. And furthermore, Luke, actually, this is a really provocative uh, work, which you're often going to find in the work of Richard Balcam, but he or made this study of the peoples. I think it's Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, around Cyrene, Romans, Cretans, and Arabs. And Balcom went ahead and kind of plotted these on a map and says, okay, based on the ancient world, you know, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and Mesopotamians, they're all to the east. Mm. So you start off in the far, the, the far east or the east. And then the next group are Judeans, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. I think most of our listeners know what Judea is, but mm -hmm. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygian, Pamphylia, that's modern-day Turkey. So that's basically the north. Mm -hmm. So you start off in the east, and you have the north, or the home of the center, Jerusalem, and Judea, and then to the north. And then he says, Egypt, Libya around Cyrene, Rome, and Cretans. That's the west. Mm -hmm. And so Bacham's like, this is going from the east to the north to the west. It's going counterclockwise. And then it's like, and Arabs, and that's the south. And there's now a large population to the south, obviously, because of the Sinai Pence and the, and the Red Sea, the Arabs to the south. And so the first thing recognized is people from all the directions of the world, whereas, of course, at, ba at Babel, they were scattered in all the directions of the world. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really significant. So what you see then beginning here, and the reason for bringing this up now is it's just going to set the stage for the letters of the New Testament, that the reversal of or the restoration of creation is taking place now with the coming of the Spirit and with the Jesus event and the coming of the Spirit, and then the life of the church. And we are called to manifest that kingdom, build that kingdom, make that kingdom known. I think that's very significant. Quick geopolitical question, because you mentioned how Egypt would be considered part of the West along with Libya and Rome. Is it because, obviously, Egypt is south of Jerusalem, but in the first century, Egypt is going to be part of the Roman Empire. So is that why it's going to be considered part of the West? I think the reason why Balcom included that as part of the West is because it came first in the list of places west, on those Libya's farther west, around Cyrene, and okay. of course Cyrene is mentioned because Simon Cyrene, Rome and Cretans. So he starts with Egypt, Libya, uh, Cyrene, uh, Rome, Cretans. So he must be talking westward. Egypt is south, but it's also west. Okay, it, okay. it's definitely southwest, and so it seems to be labeled with all the other western cities or western locations. I think that's the reason why Balcom did that. Okay, okay, interesting. Yeah, cool. So. As we kind of bring this to a head, we've yeah. talked a few times about like an eschatological or end times aspect of how people view kingdom and, and Jesus's rulership and, and that sort of thing. And then the effect that it has us on us today. 
from a popular standpoint, I mean, yeah. if you live in America, you've absolutely been influenced by an idea of there's a, a future last days and there's going to be the seven year period, but within the seven year period, half of this period, this three and a half period is very important. And that's when something is going to be happening. That is God's kind of launching his kingdom. How does that actually play with what we read, especially in Acts chapter one and two with the sending of the spirit and then how that plays out through the book of, of Acts? Yeah. So what I think I believe strongly on, and I, I think you know that, that the kingdom of God has come. It is coming and it will come. So some people will say, well, the kingdom of God has come, but they really diminish that. Mm -hmm. And they usually think, well, it has come only in the sense that Jesus died for our sins and ascended into heaven. Mm -hmm. And maybe they'll give us like, well, maybe I'll, I'll grant you the Holy Spirit thing too. Okay. But they look for the most part for everything to be futuristic. It's coming. It's still, it's the kingdom of God is coming. We're waiting for the parousia, the, the coming of the or manifestation of Jesus. And I think what you see in the scriptures is that the kingdom of God has come, is coming, and will come. Mm -hmm. And that is coming part is what we are called to live out and manifest. It's not something that we sit by waiting for. That's another problem that I have with these quote unquote eschatological speculations. And the mm -hmm. word eschatology just means the, the end times. And that is we're, when you say the kingdom of God has come, but it's really mostly future, you mean let's just sit back, read our newspapers, and watch for the signs of the times to see when it's going to happen and know mm -hmm. when we're going to get to escape from here. Instead of saying the kingdom of God has come and is coming, and that means through us, now we realize it's an active participation. Mm. And that active participation is something that we do by cross-bearing love. We take up our crosses and love one another and love our enemies and love our neighbors as ourselves. We model Jesus to the world. We do power by love, by surrender, by sacrifice, mm. by valuing others more than ourselves, by giving and by surrendering and by selling our possessions and giving to the poor. That's the manifesting of the kingdom of God. And the irony is that the New Testament teaches, and I wrote this in my book, Understanding the New Testament in the End Times, that the New Testament teaches that when the church does that faithfully and lives mm -hmm. that out wholly, Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. But until then, he will delay his coming. Mm -hmm. It's the faithfulness of God's people, for which I think the book of Revelation says, for which they get killed for doing. Mm -hmm. Those two things, the faithful living of the, sacrifice of the people of God mm -hmm. and the sacrificing of the people of God, is what actually brings about the second coming of Jesus. Sitting mm. back, watching the signs of the times does not do it, but it's a really good ploy of the devil mm. because he's distracting us, right? Okay. Hey guys, look over here. Don't worry about doing that stuff for the poor. They'll, you, you're always going to have the poor with you. Instead, look over here to Israel. Look over here to the Middle East. Look what Russia's doing in Ukraine right now. Clearly a fulfillment of the signs of the times. And so Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, just take care of this issue for us. It says, as Peter says in verse, um, verse 16, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel, referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it shall be that in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all mankind. Mm -hmm. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond servants, both men and women, in those days I'll pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And he goes on, I'm going to grant signs in the, in the skies and the, the moon. Point of that is, this sets the stage for how we read the New Testament. And we discussed Acts chapter 15 last time, and Amos chapter 9 is being cited there. And Amos is talking about the restoration of Israel. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the Gentiles are coming in is because Israel gets restored, the temple gets rebuilt, the Gentiles come in. Well, Jesus comes along. He is the temple being rebuilt. That means Israel's been restored. The temple's been rebuilt. The Gentiles are in. And so when you read the New Testament this way of going, hey, these prophecies are already fulfilled or are being fulfilled in our lives, I think it made significant 
uh, ramifications and has significant implications. Yeah. And with the ramifications, I mean, your book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, the whole point of that was there's an ethic behind it. There's something yes. that yeah. uh, the church is motivated to do in light of this. And it's not just to sit back, but it's actually to do something. It's to things like endure tribulation. It's it's things like to actually be on a mission to be the temple of God and these sorts of things. So that's, if you yeah. haven't already picked up Rob's book on that, we would uh, highly recommend that. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah. again, I think that's exactly what this podcast and the blog and everything else associated with Determined Truth is about. Our tagline is challenging the church to be the church. And that goes two ways. One, it goes, what is it that the church is supposed to be doing? That's the mission, the cross-bearing love, laying down our lives for the sake of our enemies and our neighbors and our loved ones, everything else. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And then also being a prophetic voice for when we've gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we begin to look and go, yeah, we've kind of made a mess of mm -hmm. the Middle East. I have a series of blogs coming out right now. If you're listening to this podcast kind of kind of live in early July, um, late June of 2022, and saying, yeah, we've messed up on Israel-Palestine. We've messed up on being a prophetic voice to poverty. We've messed up on race and racist issues and things of that nature. And we're going to have another episode here in a few weeks. So let's, let's talk about that now. Cool. So what is the plan? Because normally we've been doing like, you know, five episodes in, yeah. in a book and then bringing in a scholar to talk right. about something in the book. What are we doing for Acts? Yeah. So I think we're going to do it differently. We're going to have these three episodes, this being the third one. And then we're going to stop and say, okay, hey, let's talk about what missions looks like. Mm -hmm. So we've got lined up, I think, and you know him well, Vinny, mm -hmm. one of the best missionary minds I've ever seen, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the best missionaries I've ever seen, one yeah. of the people who cares more than anybody else. And he has a really good sense of how to do missions. You know, it's, yeah. not, it's not just like, I have a calling and I love to serve people. Yes. It's, they got a calling and they love to serve people, him and his wife, but they also do it with wisdom and insight mm -hmm. and like a good business plan, a strategic planning. And at the same time with the heart of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to talk about missions and the pros and the cons and the yays and the nays of missions. And then we're going to have an interview that I think is just going to blow people's doors off. Hey, you know, Jesus said, go sell your possessions and mm -hmm. give them the poor and come follow me. And we've got somebody that did it. Yeah. And really, really, really did it. And we're going to interview and say, okay, tell us your story. And literally went to Kenya yeah. and went to Africa and did it. It's just a tremendous, tremendous story. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we're going to have another interview uh, with a Native American mm -hmm. and say, let's talk about missions gone wrong, mm -hmm. uh, missions gone bad. And I think that's something that we really have to reckon with, that what is the story of the book of Acts about? Well, it's not about establishing Christendom. And I think if we were to finish up these episodes on our own part, I'd, I'd want to make sure that what we typically think, and I'm speaking in my own context, so I'm, I'm assuming that many of the listeners have this kind of perspective also. Mm -hmm. We typically think that Acts is about going into other places and making everybody Christians. And that's kind of like a staple of evangelicalism. Instead of saying, no, we're going to go into these places and just live countercultural lives mm -hmm. and create countercultural communities. And if you want to join us, please do so. But we're going to love and transform culture and transform lives. But we're not worried about transforming Rome. Mm. or America, mm -hmm. or any other nation, that will be what it is. We're going to live within those nations, and we're going to be separate from them, but we're mm. also going to transform them. Yeah. I was talking to you really briefly here before we started. There's a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's a little bit of an academic work. I'll put it in the show notes. But The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, and what the person did was he, he asked the question, how did Christianity actually even survive? Let alone just like, get started. 
how did it continue? It's preaching about a crucified Jewish guy in the Roman world mm. and about selling your possessions and becoming poor mm -hmm. and giving everything you have to follow some other Lord and denying the gods of Rome. I mean, the story itself is like, this is not going to work, mm -hmm. right? If the disciples are in Jerusalem, hey guys, let's come up with something. What do you think? Why can't I do? Hey, you know, that's just not a good plan here. Let's do something else. How about like get rich and make millions? You know, prosperity theology might work, but yep, yep. the gospel does not work. Mm -hmm. And so he invested in that question and he actually went to first century, second century, third century documents, primary research. And he said, what I think happened is the Christian communities in these cities in Rome, they're small, they're 50 people, 25 people. You know, in some of the smaller cities like Colossae, there might be a couple dozen. They simply live these countercultural lives by practicing the virtue of patience. Mm -hmm. And what he means by patience was, enduring hardship in a loving, gentle, Christ-like way so that people would come in to these churches. They'd meet like at 5 a.m. on a Wednesday morning because that's the only time they can meet because they have to go work in the fields. And then they go out at 6 a.m. and go work in the fields or wherever they, they might work. And people would go, these houses were all compact. They, they lived in close quarters, whatever city they lived in. And then the fields were out there. So people know. They heard you get up. They heard you walk down the street. They heard everybody walk into that home at 5 a.m. And then they see all those people that were in that house, the 20 people that were in the house at 5 a.m. And like, and you guys are all different. You do business fairly or you work hard as a laborer and you're nice and you're kind. What is it about you people? Hey, well, why don't you come to our meeting next week at 5 a.m.? Mm -hmm. And that's all they did. They simply lived these transparent, transformational lives. And I think that's just tremendous. So that's the gospel. That's the kingdom. But what we've done then is we've hijacked that and we, especially in the colonial and imperial uh, eras, we attached it to imperialism and said, the reason why what we're doing in India is a good thing with the mm -hmm. British Empire mm -hmm. is because we're, Christ we're bringing them Christ and Christianity, yeah. without realizing the fact that Christianity has been there for, since the first century. Yep. If you talk to Indians, by the way, the southern part of India, please, that Thomas brought the gospel to India. And we're going to go enslave these people in Africa and bring them to America, where at least they're going to know about Jesus, even though Christianity reached Africa in mm -hmm. the first and second century. But we justified it with evangelism or conversion. And I think when we look at the American product and we go, yeah, we justify the slaughtering of the Indians because we're the ancient Israelites and they're the ancient Canaanites. Exactly. And we have to slaughter them or convert them. And uh, so we're going to interview a Native American, a Christian, Native American Christian, and say, okay, this is the part of our story that we don't know. And please tell us the story so we can, we can repent, we can lament, um, and we can see what we need to do to make this right. I think that's mm. just simply very important that we need to recognize when Christian missions have gone wrong. And we have a lot of examples of that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing we are very good at in the church is assuming that we're infallible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like, no, we, we haven't always done it right. And we have to look at things like church history yeah. and every, every family has black eyes of their yeah. of their family tree and we have them as well yeah and, a lot uh, of them and then this thing is yeah. you can't just pretend that those things don't exist no. and you can't just explain them away and well they did the best they can or, or try to justify it in some ways like no some of yeah. it's just bad and and yeah. we need to be willing to do that yeah and it's part of our present history too mm -hmm. and i think that's the hardest part for people to wake up to they might be okay if we talk about indigenous people and what we did in Native Americans go, okay, yeah, that's really bad. We should repent and figure out what we can do about that. Mm -hmm. But that's in the past. But when we start realizing, okay, we're still doing some of these things in the present, you get more resistance. People yeah. are like, I'm not sure I like this conversation or I'm yeah. going to listen. So I think we need to reckon with those things also. Absolutely. Right, hey, man, this is great. Yeah, this is good stuff. Hopefully everyone is enjoying this and just uh, seeing a different flavor of, of this series. And this has yeah. been fun, the Axe series. So come back next week and check out the next episode. See you guys later. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.